Chapter forty one of Mad Barbara by Warwick Deeping. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter forty one. A man in love is not supposed to think of his lady's clothes, but only of the brightness of her eyes and the beauty of her body, the way her lips curve when she smiles, and how she may look coy or mischievous or sad and silent with some mysterious desire. Yet there is a delight in practical things when shoes are for certain feet, and the petticoats to hide a certain comely pair of ankles. John Gore had inquired of Mrs. Winnie as to the shops in Battle Town, and qualified her enthusiasm somewhat to himself when she vowed that Mr. Bannister's mercery and haberdashery shop might have served the Queen. Chris Jennifer was riding into Battle that week, for the wind had backed into the southwest, and the snow had thawed in a day and John Gore set forward to ride with Mr. Jennifer, Mrs. Winnie whispering to him that her man could carry a power of things, being accustomed to suffer all manner of commissions. For Barbara had nothing but the clothes she stood in, and was wearing a pair of Mrs. Winnie's shoes when she went down the garden path to watch John Gore mount for battle. Mrs. Jennifer was always taking her man by the coat-tails when these young things were about together, poor christopher had no peace in his own house being ordered out of the way wherever he might go and told that he was a blind booby for not keeping the corner of an eye open and for not thrashing those lazy gossiping rogues his men for loitering and hanging about the buildings yet christopher took it all very patiently going out to the stable to smoke his pipe and teach some william to make jumping jacks and bird snares and pop-guns out of elderwood Mr. Jennifer and John Gore came to Battle Town that day, and pulled up outside Mr. Bannister's shop, where Mill Street ran toward Mountjoy and the mills. Chris Jennifer had business at the farrier's and the grocer's, so he left John Gore to his own affairs, promising to be back in half an hour in order to help load the baggage. John Gore called a boy to hold his horse, and went into Mr. Bannister's shop with the grim air of an Englishman who is tempted to feel shy. A young woman came forward with ribbons in her cap, and a saucy, giggling look that seemed to rally the gentleman on his surroundings. John Gore had no use for her at all. He looked round the shop and saw no one else but a little old woman carding wool. "'Is Mr. Bannister in?' The girl stared, and the old lady put down her wool. John Gore took off his hat to her. "'May I see Mr. Bannister himself, madam?' "'Titsy, go and see where the master is.' And Titsy went, with a flaunting fling of the shoulders, for the man had not taken off his hat to her. Mr. Bannister was a mild man in rusty brown. John Gore could see that he had just washed his hands and bustled into his Sunday wig, for he had put it on awry. He came forward with the walk of a man who suffered from chronic rheumatism about the spine and he was wearing at least five pairs of stockings to judge by his bulgy legs. John Gore persuaded him to the end of the counter next the door, not at all pleased to see that Titsy of the Ribbons had come back into the shop and was listening with both her ears. "'Good day, sir. In what way may I serve you?' "'I want some of these stuffs here. God knows what you call them. Stuff for gowns and petticoats and... and... things.' The need seemed rather vague and extensive. 
Mr. Bannister worked his mouth about and wondered who the stranger was and whether he had proper money. The girl Titsy began to giggle, and John Gore half wished that he had let Mrs. Winnie come and do the shopping for him, though her taste was crude and monstrous in many ways. The fact is, sir, I have been made the guardian of a young gentlewoman, and I find that she is not clothed in the style she should be. Come here to the door, sir, to get out of range of that confounded girl of yours, whose manners might be mended. Now, Mr. Bannister, I have heard your shop well spoken of, and I want proper stuffs for a wardrobe. The—the—you know what I mean. I leave it to you. But show me your cloths and silks and ribbons. Mr. Bannister was a man of tact, especially when a gentleman produced a purse. He turned Titsy and the old lady out of the shop, locked the door, and commenced business. John Gore was soon handling all manner of dainty stuffs, silks, brocades, cloth of red and green and blue, cottons and the like. Mrs. Winnie had truly praised Mr. Bannister's store of treasures, and the lover soon had all that he listed for the glorifying of his lady. Gold passed across the counter. Mr. Bannister had begun piling certain dainty linen aside with the mystery of a man of sentiment. "'Can I send these by carrier, sir?' "'Thanks. My friend and I can take them, if you will cord the stuff so we can carry it aboard our horses.' "'Very good, sir. Very good.' Mr. Jennifer came in at that moment, his hat on the back of his head and his face trying to kill a grin. Mr. Bannister glanced at him a little severely, and was more surprised to see the stranger own him as the friend he had referred to. "'What be all these doings here, Mr. Bannister, in battle, eh?' "'What doings may you be referring to, Mr. Jennifer?' "'Doings? Why, there be old Squire Oxenham out in his grey oss and green, with a pair of soddering fellers in red, and half a score yeomen, and lawyer Gibb, and a little gentleman in a great wig, with a face like a raw side of beef.' Mr. Bannister had heard of none of these doings, and they went to the door, all three of them, and stood on the footway, looking toward the green. Squire Oxenham was there, sure enough, with a couple of troopers and the yeoman, all mounted, and one or two more gentlemen to watch the mounted men, who were keeping their horses moving, all save Squire Oxenham, the lawyer, and the red-faced man in the big black periwig. "'What be it, Garge?' Mr. Jennifer accosted a man in a leather apron who came swinging along the sidewalk. "'Devil a bit, I know. Some of these papistry gentry to be taken, I guess. Squire Oxenham's keeping mum.' Mr. Bannister pulled out a pair of tortoise-shell spectacles and took stock of the scene. He had hardly adjusted the spectacles when the two troopers came riding up the street, followed by the yeoman, Squire Oxenham, and the rest. A rabble of small boys followed at their heels— till the squire made free with the whip he carried, and drove the boys back like a lot of dogs. They swept past Mr. Bannister's shop, Chris Jennifer running forward to hold the heads of his and John Gore's horses. They saw the cavalcade go westward past the watch oak, and squire's grey horse and the redcoats of the troopers standing out vividly from the duller tints of the rest. Mr. Bannister folded up his spectacles and remarked that, the times were troubled, and that a king who gave all his days to women could not keep a kingdom clean. And he looked severely at the rows of heads protruding from the windows all down the street, and caught Miss Titsy's beribboned cap bobbing back to escape his censure. 
"'The parcels yonder are for you, Mr. Jennifer.' The farmer went in to survey the bales on the counter, while John Gore passed three doors down the street to a cobbler who sold gentlewomen's shoes. He bought a pair of red leather slippers with silver buckles, and also some strong, stout shoes fit for the wet grasslands in winter, for it was his desire that Barbara should bide at Furs Farm till he knew how matters fared in other quarters. Christopher Jennifer was a genius at piling baggage about a horse, and they were soon on the homeward road, John Gore thinking not a little of the things he had seen in Battle Town, and wondering whither that cavalcade had ridden, and what their business might be. For when a man has a secret in his heart, he is always jealous of the vaguest threat, and ready to imagine that his secret may be meddled with by all the law and the prophets. And John Gore had no wish for the tragedy of Thorn to be dragged into the light as yet. He thought of Barbara before all else, and of any peril that might threaten her new-found health and hope. Son William was packed off to bed early that night, and Chris Jennifer went out into the wood-lodge to cut logs for the fire. In the parlour were the bales that John Gore had brought in from battle, and Mrs. Winnie's fingers itched to open them. But Barbara knew nothing. It was after supper that John Gore took his knife and cut the cords, and, turning back the sacking, left Barbara and Mrs. Winnie to look at the things together. He left them to it, because he was the giver, and because he knew that there were some matters that he could have no hand in. He had told Mrs. Winnie what to say, for Barbara had fallen to like Mrs. Winnie very greatly, and Chris Jennifer's wife was no less fervent in her eagerness to mother the little lady. John Gore was sitting alone before the kitchen fire when the parlour door opened very softly, and a shadow fell athwart the clean red bricks. Barbara was standing there with some ruddy silken stuff held up over her bosom, and falling in rich folds to her feet. He turned in his chair, smitten with the thought of how fair she looked, with her swarthy beauty and that ruddy sheen of silk to heighten it. There was just a flash of woman's vanity in her eyes that moment, a thing new in her since he had come. Barbie! She came to him, holding the stuff in her two hands, and they could hear Mrs. Winnie singing with purposeful vigour in the parlour. "'John, how good of you! But you must let me—' "'Let you do what, my soul?' and he rose and stood looking at her very dearly. "'Pay you, John! What pride and nonsense! But that silk is sweet now, is it not?' She met his eyes, blushed and looked down at her own figure, and then suddenly she let the silken stuff fall to the floor, put her two hands up over her face and burst into tears. "'How wicked of me! How utterly wicked! Why, Barbie, child? Don't speak to me, John, to think that I should give thought to such things when all this is over you, over us both!' He went to her, putting an arm about her shoulder, touch her hands gently with his lips weep not dear heart if it be wrong that you should have these pretty stuffs it is i who am to blame for loving you she let her hands fall and looked up through a mist of tears into his face john can we can you ever forget the past can you forgive what have i to forgive dear heart ah yes but he held her at arm's length his two hands upon her shoulders, and looked into her eyes. "'Barbara, it, it is not your heart that is hard now. 
God has given this love to us, and what God gives, who shall forbid? She hung her head and sighed. I am wondering, John. Well, my life, what will happen? What we must do? What the end may be? He looked at her a moment in silence, and then spoke like a man whose strength is in his own heart. Child, there is one good and certain thing with us. Let us hold to it, you and I together. I will take shame from no man, and no lie from any living throat. If there should be dark days, let them come. I will not let you go from me. No, for here life is, nor can there be sin or shame in that which God has given. She looked up at him quickly with a great brightness of the eyes. John, I cannot, I could not stand all alone now. Why, my desire, what more can a man pray for? And they still heard Mrs. Winnie singing, as though she were singing at a harvest home. In a little while, they went back together into the parlour, hand in hand. Chris Jennifer's wife was standing with her back to them, posing herself before a little old mirror with a bright piece of stuff, pink roses upon a green ground, folded about her bosom. She turned with a start, and whisked the thing away as though shy of a piece of matronly vanity. "'Why, Mrs. Winnie, you have picked out the very thing!' "'Me, sir? I was only trying how my little lady would look in it, gathered up over the breast, just so, Mr. John.' "'But I bought that piece of stuff for you, Mrs. Winnie. Now come, my dear good gentleman, me with pink roses. Well, I should praise you in it.' "'Pink roses and a face like a side of bacon? "'Dear soul, but it be too young for me.' "'Barbara went to her suddenly, "'and taking the stuff, unfolded it, "'and held it to Mrs. Jennifer's figure. "'And in truth she looked comely, "'with the sweet colours of it, "'turning her coy, brusque face, "'this way and that, with self-conscious pride. "'You look like a bride, Mrs. Jennifer.' "'Go along with you, Mr. John. "'You be as bad as the rest of them with your tongue. "'But by my soul, dearie, it do look sweet.'" End of chapter 41